welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. About once a year, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what's on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's 1998 Southwestern action flick starring James Woods, Daniel Baldwin, and Cheryl Lee. Vampires. Plus, I've got a pick for the perfect beer to pair with this bloodbath picture, and we've both got something you should definitely check out in Really Rad Recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. So technically, there are plenty of things that we could talk about in the uh, John Carpenter Newswire that we haven't talked about on the show. We've missed a lot. Several Halloween trailers, uh, the release of John Carpenter's new uh, theme song for the upcoming Halloween. Uh, But I really don't want to talk about those things because I, I don't know about you, but I've put myself on mandated blackout until Halloween arrives early for us this year on October 19th. Yeah, I watched one early trailer, and other than that, I'm not watching anything. I don't want anything else spoiled. I haven't listened to the song, haven't watched any new trailers, haven't looked for posters or stills or really anything. I'm just going to say let's let's take a moment and just bask in the fact that we are less than a month away now. from We are weeks away from a new Halloween movie, scored by John Carpenter. Uh, and, and with... The shape played by, at least partially played by, the original shape, Nick Castle. Just with that, I'm I'm super stoked. I can't wait. We will we will have a review of uh, the new David Gordon Green Halloween in the Carpenter Shop and the Warsaw to Midnight podcast feeds uh, when it comes out. So look forward to that. Um, and that's that's it, man. I'm I'm stoked. It's knowing that that's coming out that's giving me the little bit of fuel that that I I need to get through these uh, other movies we got coming up. Oh yeah, these other movies. Do you want to do you want to talk about one of these other movies? Yeah, we probably should get into it. Okay. I've at this point I've watched it. We should talk about it. I'm 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 very curious where this conversation is going. All right, let's yeah. uh, let's talk about vampires. Crazy boss. All right, we think we got a nest inside this place. Figure on at least six goons, maybe more. And chances are we'll find the master in here somewhere. Rule number five, if you find the nest, you find the master. You usually won't leave it on its own. So it is strictly by the book today, gentlemen. Questions? Let's get to work. Okay, Jake. So the basic plot of vampires, the, I'll give you the exposition dump, the one of many, if we were to really recap this movie, we would, we would have to get into, um, along the way of this, this review. But basically the Catholic church in the 13th century accidentally created vampires. Um, they, they didn't set out to do it, but they, they did. It was, it was an issue. And so they kind of swept it under the rug and, uh, kept it hush hush, and now the church assembles teams of vampire hunting mercenaries uh, all around the world and use them to eradicate the nests of goons, which are sort of like the lowest level vampires, and their masters who have 
turned all of basically the masters have turned all the goons into vampires and have some sort of tele- telepathic uh, connection to them in some way. It's not really they don't really get into uh, the details. They didn't get into the details, but they did subscribe to the tell don't show uh, philosophy as far as the exposition went. Yeah, a lot of it. And I wonder, I mean, we will get into this in a second, I think, but I wonder how much of that is uh, editorial cutting cutting stuff down. Um, mm-hmm. but so, so the basic plot of this is we're following around James Woods. He plays this character, Jack Crow. Daniel Baldwin plays his sort of sidekick, uh, Anthony Montoya, and they are vampire hunters. They are very good at their job and, uh, they are hunting down this, uh, this one master. His name is Jan Valak. Turns out he is the original master from, uh, the 13th century. He was a priest who sort of, uh, turned to the dark side, if you will. And then the Catholic church attempted to do like an anti exorcism on him and they turned him into a vampire. And then he started turning other people into vampires and he's been doing it for centuries. So this movie actually, Jake, let's, let's begin at the beginning. This movie begins as a dungeon crawler and you know, it's just this team of, uh, of dungeon hunters. They roll up to this sort of like, Deep fried Southern Gothic looking house, uh, a, a Mexican shithole. Is that is that what is it? James Woods that calls it that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, when <laughs> I think in it's doubt, one of the first lines in the movie. Uh, but they they roll up to this house and then they they start you know kind of creeping into this or and then they start kind of you know raiding this creepy little uh, this creepy little home and it's fun. It's actually, it's a lot of fun. You don't know exactly what's going on. There's a little mystery to it. There's a little suspense and just like, you don't know yet what the rules of the world is. And that's, that's exciting. And then the vampires show up and they actually, they look pretty scary and, um, we're off to a good start. And, uh, these particular vampire hunters, their flavor of, uh, eradicating vampires is they're, they're very, flamboyant in the way that they like to do it. Uh, James Woods as the leader, he carries around this crossbow. <laughs> He'll shoot it into the vampires. And then, uh, his old buddy, uh, Montoya out at the Jeep uses the winch to pull him out and fry him in the sun. Okay. The rules are not strongly defined. Also, sometimes you stab a wooden stake through their heart before you pull them out into the sun because, Reasons? Because yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't really know. It's funny that you say the rules are not clearly defined because apparently there's like at least ten or a dozen <laughs> baker's dozen rules that these vampire hunters have, but we never really get them except for when it needs to fit uh, the plot of the film. I say all this just to say that, like, I really enjoyed the first opening, like what five to ten minutes of this movie. I was, I was really excited for where we were going. Um, ultimately I think it sort of just descends into a very generic sort of good guy hunts, bad guy action movie. Um, I mean, it's got, it's got maybe a bit more blood and gore than you would typically get, which is, uh, I, I don't even think that really feels particularly John Carpenter esque. Um, it's just sort of. Not not to say that he wouldn't he wouldn't do it, but it's just sort of there as an additional piece. I mean, this really feels like John Carpenter, and I I honestly don't mean this as a slight, although it 
will probably be taken that way. It feels like John Carpenter is just straight up making a B movie. First, I, I wouldn't really call it an action so much as I would call it a Western. Like it felt like a horror Western. I don't think uh, it's a horror movie at all, though. Well, I guess, but it doesn't have quite the same dynamic to me as like bad guy going to overrun the town because I guess, I guess they hold up, they hole up in the jail in this town. Like I get that, but there is like somebody also stalking uh, Jack Crow. So a little bit of a horror, a little bit, but it's never like, it's never really terrifying. The most terrifying thing is the fact that it's a world that has vampires. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of big jumps when they like go into the buildings and something comes out like a little bit, but, but he, he never goes for, for pure scares. Um, like I, I definitely thought it was going to end. Um, I, I thought there was, remember when the priest stepped out of the elevator, mm-hmm. um, to like, or the Padre stepped out of the elevator to like look around and then had to run back. Yeah, I thought that was going to get way more terrifying, and it did not. Let's talk about that scene in in a bit, because um, I I have things to say about that. But no, you're right, and I guess when when I'm defining that, I don't really think it's a horror movie. I don't think it's a John Carpenter horror movie. Compare oh, no, this I to agree. something like Halloween, or even like The Fog, or uh, or even um, Prince of Darkness for that matter, which is, you know, more, you know, closer to, you know, it's a very, it's a very low budget sort of, um, sort of film. I mean, I guess Halloween is as well. And to a certain extent, the fog, but, um, you compare the pace and the tension of something like Halloween or the fog to this. And there's just none of that here. It's just a more conventional. And that, that's what I mean by action movies. It feels like it follows action movie beats of just like this, then this, then this, then this, because it's in the script, um, because James Woods is our hero and he's supposed to be our hero, even though I would much rather have, uh, what was his name? Tim Gunny, Guinea, um, who plays, he plays the, the Padre as, uh, as James Woods calls him. He's sort of the, the young priest that comes along in the second act, uh, joins up on the team and he's sort of the reluctant hero. I would much rather be following him and following that character and his conflict uh, than than us following Jack Crow, who is just a pretty milk toast, underdeveloped uh, '90s action hero. Yeah, I, I I mean, he killed his parents. I guess we find that out later, but he doesn't have like I don't know when, when uh, the spoiler a little bit, but at the end of the movie, they they get rid of a. Uh, uh, Jan Valik, I guess his name is the Valik, yeah, uh, Valik. And uh, I was thinking, you know, like usually your hero wins, and and you know what his stakes for, like what he was fighting for, what he's going to go back to. And I was thinking all the vampires would be gone at this point. I was like, he gets to live a life now. I guess mean, he doesn't have a life. Mm-hmm. Like nothing is established for him. Nothing. There is no, no one he's fighting for. Nothing he cares about. He just wants to kill vampires. He's a messed up dude. He doesn't even. I guess he sort of had a bromance with uh, with uh, the guy who was not Billy Baldwin. Daniel Baldwin. Plot the, twist. He's he's the Baldwin brother that looks the most like Alec and is perhaps the least talented. <laughs> Come on, there's there's got to be another another Baldwin brother out there lower than him on the totem pole. But does he look as much like Alec? I mean, Daniel no. Baldwin legitimately could have just made a career out of being uh, Alex's stunt double. Well, I, I think at the time, Alec was much skinnier and, 
and and probably better looking. But he looks like an old Alec Baldwin. That's, that's actually that is a thought that I had was that I was trying to think of what Alec Baldwin looked like in 1998, and that that thought did cross my mind that he looked like he, he looked like like somewhere in between there and 30 Rock. Alec Baldwin was about about the physique that he had. Yeah, he he was he was pretty close to a Jack Donaghy there, but um, but Jack Crow and Anthony Montoya um sort of had a bromance going, but also like a like a love hate thing going. They almost throw down in a monastery or something at one point. Yeah, like, so I mean, I think I think all of that is supposed to be like a Red River homage, like you know, uh, uh, John Wayne and uh, Montgomery Clift, like they're sort of. They have this sort of father-son-ish relationship, but then they also have, they butt heads, um, and they butt heads up until the end. And so that's, I think that's John Carpenter's intent. Like, I mean, it's got to be because of how much he loves Hawks. But I just don't remember any Hawks character asking another one if they got aroused after killing a vampire. Like it, it's just it was so far away. Like I, I think I would have liked this movie better if it didn't have James Woods going full James Woods. Well, and from what I understand, James Woods ad libbed a lot in this movie. And what I <laughs> you don't say <laughs> what what I came to realize, like as I was doing a bit of research on this, was. Every line that comes out of James Wood's mouth where I kind of squirmed a little bit, um, then found out, oh, that was an ad lib. Like the the worst of the worst lines from from his character, like when he's in the uh, the big armored van with the Padre and he's explaining to the Padre what a vampire is. That was an ad lib. Have you ever seen a vampire? No. Well, first of all, they're not romantic. All right? It's not like they're a bunch of fucking fags hopping around in rented formal wear and seducing everybody in sight with cheesy Euro trash accents, all right? Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. Garlic? Want to try garlic? You stand there with garlic around your neck. One of these buggers will bend you fucking over and take a walk up your strata chocolata while he's sucking the blood out of your neck, all right? They don't sleep in coffins lying in taffeta. You want to kill one? You drive a wooden stake right through his fucking heart sunlight turns them into crispy critters you know interestingly enough that was part of the the uh movie where it started gaining some stock back in my eyes like it it, it had been a little low going into that and i was looking forward like you said to learning more about the padre and getting the relationship between jack crow and the padre Mm -hmm. jack crow and the padre like i thought that was gonna grow and move us forward and kind of explore some different territory didn't pan out exactly like i thought there were a couple of good moments there nothing uh Nothing like I expected, though. I think the fact that they are on the hunt for the vampires instead of um, perhaps being pursued by is is another thing that makes me feel like it's more of an action. Like that whole him and him and the Padre teaming up going in search of Valak. That's so much more an action trope than a horror trope. If it was more of a horror movie, they would be on the run from the vampires or they would be they would maybe be in pursuit of Valak, but then there's this other mysterious thing following them or some little, like there's just nothing, there's nothing terrifying about the world. There's no suspense or tension that really pulled me into that, that horror element. I tend to like Westerns more 
when you're under assault and the bad guy is going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 he Rio rides Bravo. through town. He, yeah, Rio Bravo, High Noon, 90 other movies. Yeah. Um, or Seven Samurai, even. The bad guys come around, they're going to come back. You got to prepare, you got to get ready. But this put James Woods on the hunt. How, what would you have thought of this movie if you were kind of on the vampire side and these vampire hunters were going to come back to kill you and you had to get ready to defend against them? Like, would that have been a movie you would have been a little more interested in seeing or a different take on it? It, I, I think it would be an interesting take. I don't think, I don't know if that's something that, uh, that John Carpenter would necessarily do. Like, I've never, because, because I think he, and, and this is the thing that, that really gets conflicted for me is because I feel the tropes of the things that John Carpenter likes and that you see throughout all of his movies. But mm-hmm. for instance, um, Jack Crow, he is essentially the same type of character as Snake Plissken. Snake, yeah. But he is by no means Snake Plissken. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we talked about on, on the Escape from New York episode how Plissken does things that and says things that are, they are detestable by all, you know, general measure, but they work for that character. Whereas yeah. Jack Crow says things that are detestable and they're just detestable. Like there's no like, we don't, and maybe it's because the character isn't developed enough. And so there's not, we don't understand any of his motivation until late into the game. And even then it's once again, just an exposition dump of here's my origin. There's, you know, yeah. there's just nothing driving him. There's nothing motivating him. And so to take a character who is that sort of bleak and gross and, and put him front and center, but not give him anything that feels like you can relate to him, even if you don't fully agree with his perspective on the world or that sort of thing. That's that's what this movie is missing, I think, if you're going to try to put that character up front. I did get a little bit of like a reverse assault on Precinct 13 by the end of this movie, mm-hmm. going in and getting the people who were holed up in the jail. Um, I, I guess it would have been interesting to me. John Carpenter always has a supernatural assaulting people. This has people assaulting the supernatural, but mm-hmm. I would have liked to seen it from the point of the supernatural with the people assaulting them. I would have liked to seen John Carpenter's take on, on that a little bit. I know it's wrong to criticize this movie for something I would have liked to have seen that is not really related, but I just didn't think it worked as well as it could have. And I, I would, it had me thinking like, I would, have, I would like to see this almost from a different perspective. That's another thing that I feel like is sort of lost here is it's an opportunity to, reinvent the vampire genre in a way. And basically all of that is done to reinvent it is say, okay, well it's said in the Southwest, it's sort of a Western and that's about it. Like there's no, we don't really get into much mythology outside of like, Oh, the Catholic church accidentally did this. Like once again, the exposition dumps, I don't feel like I fully understand the world and I'm not engrossed in the world. And I feel like that's a real letdown. I think your, you know, sort of hypothetical proposal of flipping the perspective would have made it actually very interesting. Um, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a uh, Black Mirror episode from I think a season back. Uh, kind of reminds me of uh, of that. But um, I still don't think like I don't think it's the type of thing that Carpenter perhaps would would have done that story. I guess what this is, what I'm getting at is like, 
I think the vampires had an interesting backstory. Yeah. I think it was an interesting set of rules about it that I would like to know more about. And I felt like our vampire hunters did not have a backstory. <laughs> like, I mean, think of all of the just like lost opportunity with Cheryl Lee's character, uh, Katrina, I think is her name. She's mm-hmm. the prostitute that then Valak early on turns her into a vampire. But apparently in this in this world, it takes it's not an instantaneous turn. It takes a while, and it could have been interesting if you had the conflict of her turning and the conflict of her in this sort of like middle, almost this purgatory of she's no longer human, but she's not a vampire yet, and give her character conflict there. Instead of making her the just assault of uh, misogynist uh, yelling and beating from these two Dudes. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen like Montoya and Katrina start growing together and she teaches some, him some empathy or something like that along the way, just to build that character a little bit. Also, let's rewind. She was a prostitute. I thought she was just like a trashy woman. I think it was implied by, I don't remember if it was the manager, maybe the sheriff, like somebody who somebody else talks to at the party. Um, like secured the prostitutes, like basically furnished ah. for for eradicating the the vampire nest. Their reward was a entire motel rented out and prostitutes supplied. That's my understanding. By the way, was that the guy from Last Man on Earth? Mark Boone Jr. Yes, it was. Yes, um, <laughs> I was sad to see him go to pieces. <laughs> so soon because that was another thing like when he showed up in the beginning i was like oh this is gonna be fun he's yeah, gonna be yeah. like i thought he was gonna be sort of like the comic relief guy mm-hmm. like the jack black in in a mid-90s movie sort of guy mm-hmm. um and then he's ripped in half and actually that i did like that effect quite a bit that oh i thought that was one of the better ones yeah yeah he went very quickly which was sad did i read correctly that the budget got cut real big on this movie maybe i I didn't hear anything about that. I think it was almost 20 million. So it was, I mean, 98, um, definitely not a big budget movie, but also um, 20 million would get you a lot further then than it will now. Um, So, I mean, it's like probably a mid, a mid, but still with, as far as Carpenter's concerned, he's, we've seen him do much more with much less, you know? Yeah. Do do you want to hear my really honest, odd opinion on this i do i absolutely do i thought that this did not feel like as much of a john carpenter movie set in the southwest as something like tremors feels like (laughs) it's a really bizarre position to take but it's like they're both set in the southwest they're both horror films and one of them feels way more like the creative type of endeavor i would feel like john carpenter should have been doing in the 90s Mm-hmm. And the other one is vampires. Like, I, that's that's actually really interesting. Maybe one day we'll get to our Tremors discussion. Maybe one day, uh, <laughs> which we've recorded months ago. But hey, man, it'll come sometime. Um, but that's that's interesting because it has Tremors has the mix of comedy and horror and sort of just the tone of it feels like. Uh-huh. Like it would be a carpenter style. That's interesting. I think, I think of that. Think of that car getting eaten into the ground and still playing the oldies and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Think of the way the like rules of the world change and they have to jump from rock to rock and the little bit of playfulness that's there, but also the bit of impending horror. Yeah. Uh, 
Think of Victor Wong getting eaten through the floor. <laughs> I like, forgot, yeah, Victor Wong's in it. Yeah, like it feels like what Carpenter should have been doing in the 90s. And for some reason, we're getting vampires with James Woods. I don't know what went wrong and what timeline we ended up on. But it, it's just, it, it doesn't feel like it has that soul of the, the 80s Carpenter the way uh, the movies he influenced did. I agree with you. And with, so with you taking this stance, I'm going to take another stance and say that I don't think this is the worst Carpenter film we've seen. And I, I think it's better than Village of the Damned. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Here's here here's Why? like I I understand that's that's a mildly hot take probably um <laughs> mildly but here's here's how I come down on it um I think that there's Village of the Damned still like while I enjoyed it 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 also felt very uh by the numbers old school and in a way that was like comforting, but also not very challenging. Whereas I feel like he's trying to build a world. He's just failing to do it. And, and I think because it's falling into these kind of natural conventions, like the, because the entire middle of this movie is just like, you can plot it out on a whiteboard very easily. And it's just, it's, super simple and has no consequence of any kind really um partially because characters aren't fleshed out and partially because just the motivation is sort of it's whatever but there's still something in particularly that that opening scene and then some of the stuff like the uh that jail scene that you mentioned earlier where uh you've got the padre going up the elevator and you don't know what's going to happen. Like that scene worked really well for me. And it felt like the, and the tragedy of it is by the time it comes around, it's like, why, where has this been the past hour, hour and a half? Why haven't, yeah. why, why is this not the entire movie or why is this not the feel of the entire movie? Um, yeah. You're telling me you is, got John Carpenter and a script where they repeatedly have to go into dark places to try to pull out vampires who could be hiding on the ceiling and you do it like one and a half times. Well, but even like the pacing of that, that feels the most, that that elevator sequence feels the most like John Carpenter horror of anything in the entire movie. I'm going to say it's not even John Carpenter's best horror elevator seer, uh, scene. You're not wrong, but... You know why? Because Dark Star exists. <laughs> I, it's, it's, Dark Star's more comedic. Uh, you, you've also... <laughs> You've also got some elevator scenes going on, although not not explicitly horror in uh, in Big Trouble in Little China. Um, yeah, should we be talking about? Should we we be rating John Carpenter's elevator cannon? <laughs> Is this a missed opportunity? Uh, Too late now, <laughs> I guess. But uh, there's there's little things that just like you know, I I like the look and the feel of this movie. I like. Uh, I, and I, this is, I feel like I'm going out on a limb again. I think this is Gary B. Kibbe. Apparently it's pronounced Kibbe and not Kib as, as we've been saying. I think this is maybe his best looking film, mainly because of that, uh, jailhouse elevator sequence and the opening like dungeon crawler thing. I know we've got, and this is 
something like this is a totally preference thing and and it feels i understand it feels very dated and it feels like a decade older than it actually is maybe mm-hmm. even the mm-hmm. um the whole like gradient sky thing that he's got going on feels very top gun um no it's like, really bad it's worse than that when the vampires start coming out of the ground uh when um the main one raises up with like the seven other ones and it's super orange at the top, even though it's clearly daytime and they're trying like a, a day for dawn type yeah, thing yeah. going. Day, a day uh, for dusk. Yeah, for dusk. Yeah. Chelsea was like, they can walk during the day now. And I was like, no, they're going for something. It's just not working. It's just, he's trying. And that's fair. That's, I mean, that's totally fair. But I just think like as boring and flat as something like uh, they live looked and you know the weirdness of whatever that scene with the brick wall and everything and village of the damned and like this is this looks better and more interesting even if it is like he's going out on a limb and maybe not everything works but he's swinging for the fences and i appreciate that i hear you but to go back to village of the damned the reason this this movie is worse than Village of the Damned, Village of the Damned had those scenes that still still work better than anything in this movie, which is uh, the wife sticking her hand in the boiling water, the wife jumping into the sea, the even like those really really carpenter scenes of like jumping off of the roof and onto the broom, woman sets herself on fire, like it had those things that I like seeing from John Carpenter movies. That this one could have benefited from. You had vampires. You had stuff that could have been happening. It just never never quite reached those moments that stood out for me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, it's, it lacks as much John Carpenter fingerprint. Like, you, you, don't, you don't have his fingerprints on as much of it as you do on Village of the Damned. Even if Village of the Damned feels like sort of you know what you're going to get, you still have those little touchstone moments. Even if, as we were talking in that discussion like they feel few and far between and in comparison to something like uh, in the mouth of madness if you average this movie like its average score might be higher than village of the damned but village of the damned had higher peaks for me if that makes more sense like it had parts that peaked up high enough that i say there's something you really need to go and see here there there's a few things you should go and take a look at just to get a, a full idea i don't i didn't necessarily get that here I think the opening's great. I think the elevator scene's great. I think, but I mean, other than that, you're, I I can't defend it because there's not ultimately, well, actually, Jake, maybe let's hold off on this, this thought for just a second, shall we? Sure. Because I think uh, this is the perfect opportunity to get to the Carpenter Canon. But first... I think we should probably score the score. What do you say? Yeah, let's go for it. And Jake, remind me, how do we score the score? Out of a score, which is 20. So this score, it's it actually stands out, I think, in the oeuvre of John Carpenter. Uh, because he's he's playing along with the Texas Toad Lickers here. Um, which is sort of a, a Texas-based 
I believe. I did no research on this, so don't hold me to this. A Texas group of people who apply their tongues to amphibians. That's right. Um, but a Texas-based sort of like, you know, roadhouse blues rock group. Um, you've got a lot of this bluesy riffing, picking, um, some Hammond B3 organ uh, sort of taking place of synth. And then a lot of, I mean, not everything, but a lot of Carpenter's uh, contribution is him just laying back in lead guitar. So there's a lot of stuff where it's not Carpenter up front. Um, so let's, let's start there. What, what did you think of this approach to uh, the soundtrack with this Western Southwestern setting? Mm. Didn't do it for you. Yeah. There were a few parts where like I could feel the Carpenterness coming out and it was fine. There were also other times where it was just like, yep, this is kind of what I would expect from like a, a Southwest B movie. Like it, it didn't. Okay. Yeah. None of Fair. it stood out enough for me. I'm not saying it was like awful or ruined. It, it was kind of just, I don't know. I'm giving it a nine. Wow. So, okay. I'm going to hold off my score for just a second. I have a little more that I want to talk about. That's, I feel like that's a little harsh though. You think uh, it's nine. harsh? I mean, I get it. I guess I get it, especially based on your your stance on this. Um, yeah, and when the when the movie's not working, it's really hard to say. Oh, the score worked great. Score yeah. and film are so tightly tied together that when one's working, the other's working, and yeah. when one's not working, the other is not working. Well, and the thing that's interesting is it's it doesn't really feel much like a John Carpenter score, except for there are moments when you have synth tracks come in, or there's. Uh, there's actually a moment where Daniel Davies, who is John Carpenter's godson and plays with him um, on played with him on the Lost Theme stuff, plays with him on tour, played with him on the new Halloween uh, soundtrack. He's got a little like rock lead thing in in one of the tracks. I, I think there's even a track that uh, Carpenter's son, Cody Carpenter, composed um, in here that's a more synthy thing. So you've got you got a little bit of that, but it's all that kind of underscore stuff and it's it's all right it's serviceable i i like the bluesiness i like the aspect of it here's i guess here's my major criticism because i like i'm not the total opposite of you on this i'm not just going to defend it to the four winds but um i'm more I guess disappointed in the potential versus what we got on the film overall and the, the score included. So I wish this was honestly, I wish this was a straight ahead sort of Western with Carpenter trying to do just a great straight ahead Western soundtrack with the Padre being our reluctant hero and all of that stuff. We don't get that. Uh, I still don't think the, I, I don't think it's just total wallpaper, whatever B movie music. Um, it's, it's all right. It's solid. It's serviceable to the movie. Um, I'm not going to put it on a playlist. I'm going 11. The way you reacted to my nine being a little harsh. I expected you to come in at like 14 or something, but 11 is not that much different. It's not that much different. No, it's it's more, I think we had the discussion about sort of if you're grading it on like an ABC scale, then you're you're obviously flunking 
this mm-hmm. uh yeah this this movie what or this score so yeah. there it is let's move on to the clash of the carpenter shall we sure you want to start sure so clash of the carpenter for those who for whatever reason do not know on each episode we pit a badass from the john carpenter movie we are discussing against a reigning the reigning badass in this sort of ongoing tournament that we have have running so we began the carpenter shop with the thing and so naturally kurt russell's rj mccready was our default victor and he went on to defeat victor wong's professor barack in the Prince of Darkness. And then defeated the creepy innkeeper, Miss Pikmin, from In the Mouth of Madness. And then bomb number 20 from Darkstar. But then R.J. McCready's reign ended, and we had a lot of turnover. First, R.J. McCready was defeated by The Shape from Halloween. And then The Shape was defeated by the titular Christine from Christine. Who was allegedly beaten by the whole crew from Precinct 13, from Assault on Precinct 13. Who were then vanquished by Blake and his band of sailor-wielding sword lepers. In the fog. But finally, Kurt Russell returned to the brawl as Snake Plissken in Escape from New York and claimed his throne from Blake and Co. And then he went on to defeat Jeff Bridges' Starman in Starman by helping him return to his home planet. But was soon defeated by Jack Burton in an epic three-way Russell on Russell on Russell tussle with Burton and a mysterious figure who looked an awful lot like R.J. McCready. So now from this brawl, Burton has been our reigning champion ever since. So first he went on to fight Nada from They Live, and this was the biggest, longest, most epic knockdown, dragout brawl of the entire Clash. Uh, but Burden was ultimately the victor as he wrestled Nada into submission or something. Burton then defeated Sam Neill's cold-blooded CIA assassin David Jenkins from Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And then on the last episode, he defeated Christopher Reeve's Dr. Alan Chaffee, from village of the damned or they teamed up and they had an amicable i don't i don't really remember how we we ended there other than jack burden won stuff happened i don't remember how that ended much like much like dangerous men (laughs) but now he's up against who is he up against chris well i i mean naturally you would think that we would be putting him up against jack crow but uh, I don't think either, either of us really cared much for Jack Crow. No. Can we put him up against the vampires from Vampires? Uh, he, I think he would very easily defeat the vampires, to be perfectly honest. That seems like a type <laughs> of situation where you put Jack Burton up against vampires and he just like accidentally defeats all of them. Had, Look, it, had the Catholic Church just known about Jack Burton, <laughs> they could have nipped this in the bud a long time ago. His resume already has defeating multiple hundred-year-old people. Yeah, exactly. Which sounds less impressive when you say it that way. That sounds like he beat up two hundred-year-old dudes. He's beat up multiple hundred-year-old people. Is, he has defeated immortals. Like, yes. If you're, yeah, if you're looking through LinkedIn pro- profiles, this is the guy you hire for the vampire hunting. Yeah. Um, now, I, I think the most interesting character in this entire movie is the Padre. So I think he should fight the Padre. Sure. Well, let's let's go with let's go with that. You just want to keep moving on. Let's let's just play this lip service so Jack Burton can walk away the victor. Honestly, I mean, it's more that I want to highlight the Padre and how like he's. I like him. I like him a lot. He needed he needed to be a more central character in this. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he had a compa- he he was compelling. He had a backstory. He had beliefs. He had to change those beliefs. He had to come around and decide if he was going to help uh, Crow or not. Like. 
Like there was things happening there. I get it. Let let's give him the the MVP award for the movie. I think that's yeah, what we're doing. That that's what we're doing. But uh, I I don't know. I don't know about you. I've constructed a little narrative about how I think it might go down. Uh, let me know if you think this makes sense or you got other okay. ideas. I'm thinking maybe maybe what actually happens is Jack Burton actually does come in to help eradicate the rest of the vampires. And he joins up with the Padre, and they they spend a lot of time as buddies fighting these vampires. But then the Padre gets bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jack Burden, being very efficient at accidentally taking down vampires, accidentally takes down his best buddy, the Padre. No, not accidentally. I think it's more like he watches him turn, hmm. doesn't want to do it, and then has to do it. Okay. Either yeah, way. Like, there's yeah. a fight after the father turns, and again... No match for Jack Burton. No match for Jack Burton, which is just a ridiculous thing to say. I feel like Jack Burton's like a cat. He always lands on his feet. Like, we, we don't really have to worry about Jack Burton here. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, his reign continues. Moving on to uh, the segment that we teased up earlier, the Carpenter Cannon. So, Jake, I am very, very curious where you land on this one. And that's not even lip service. Like I legitimately have no idea where you're going to land on this one. Well, I have, I, I know where you're not going to land. So let's start at the top. <laughs> um, Jake, is this movie a Carpenter classic? No, it is not. Jake, is this movie a deep dive? Let me talk through it. Cause, cause here, here's where I'm at. Okay. Well, let me, let me give you, since you're talking through it, let me give you your other option. We know it's not a Carpenter classic. It could be a deep dive. Or if it doesn't quite cut the mustard for a deep dive, it could be just for Johnny's mummy. Okay, so I have reviewed something like 14 John Carpenter movies at this point. 14, 15, something in that range. And I have yet to give out a just for Johnny's mummy. Because I have found something in all of these movies to appreciate and that a John Carpenter fan should absolutely watch. Um, and I know that this movie was well received when it came out uh, compared to like his other work of the era. And it was considered a, like a change of pace for um, for James Woods' career. And it had some really interesting ideas. <sighs> I know that a Carpenter fan should probably go and watch this. Just for completeness sake. Just because it is something so different. But I'm still giving it a just for Johnny's mommy. I can't in good Ooh. conscience recommend someone go and watch this film. Okay. You would have to express some e extreme love of the vampire genre and completeness for me to, or completeness of John Carpenter's work to, yeah. to just want to watch this movie. That is cold. I mean, I get it. I know that is cold. Well, and let's, let's just clear up. Let, let the record stand that we only have two just for Johnny's mommies on the books. Now we you have had one for escape from LA. Oh yeah. Which is the film that. just before this one. Yeah, man, this Ooh. this really. I mean, it makes me it makes me a little a little sad, but also like, I I I get I get why you do it. I think for for me, like I I've been pretty harsh in this movie, but not nearly as harsh as you have. Um, and I think I mean I think your criticism is justified. I'm going the deepest of the deep dive possible. Yeah. Like there are there are little twinkles in this movie that I like. And those are the things that I would, I would say it's worth, it's worth seeing for the opening. It's worth seeing for, uh, what the Padre could have been. It's worth seeing for the elevator sequence. 
Um, I mean, and there's there's some other there's little things here and there. Like I think the I think the sequence just before uh, the master vampire turns uh, Cheryl Lee is pretty like visually compelling. Like when mm-hmm. when you see her walk into the motel room and he's up there on the ceiling, um, that's that's pretty nice. Yeah, and and so just just to speak to my just for Johnny's mommy, what happens thirty seconds after that? Uh, the 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 vampire goes in. And it's one of the worst constructed fight scenes I've ever seen. Just oh god, like, yeah. So let's let's actually let's talk through this. You might like. <laughs> we'll we'll see where. Well, okay. Um, books are still open. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of stuff cut out of this movie in editing. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of stuff just sort of pasted over in ways that were, you know, like oh, we got to put lipstick on a pig. And that action sequence definitely felt like one of them. It, it definitely felt like we shot all of this stuff and we had sort of had choreography, but no real plan on how it came together. So just like slow-mo and dissolves. Yeah, slow-mo and dissolves. Chris, it, 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 this was one of the parts of the film that made me feel like I was watching the TU student film channel in 2006. And it was just like a student film where some people were trying real hard. Like we we did okay, right? Yeah, but that's not really how you shoot action. That's a great point. Like I was thinking back to while watching that sequence, I was thinking back to some of the action in Starman of all movies, which isn't like necessarily an action packed film, but there he's got that that car chase uh, mm-hmm. that I think was very well executed, and it just felt like two different directors between yeah. those two. And you know, like, I mean, Starman is not even a movie where if you're going to say like John Carpenter directing action, it's not even his best action by any means, but just like the simplicity of knowing exactly how to pull it off versus this just feeling like it feels like it's all coverage that then comes together later in the editing room. Only one of two things could have happened. They could have run out of money and that's the only way they could have done it or... He tried to shoot it, and it wasn't on film. It wasn't. It, he didn't get it, and that's the best they could do. Yeah, and that is what I don't want to believe because I think John Carpenter is a great director and a great workman, and he's going to get in and he's going to make it work as best he can. So I don't want to believe that. I want to believe the budget was cut. They needed to have a massacre. There was no other way to handle it. Let's let's just believe it then, and not n- never research this movie again. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I think. It sounds like there was a lot of stuff that was cut out of the movie as far as like maybe things that would have felt a little more Carpenter as far as building the world and characters and that sort of thing. But it sounds like there was a lot of stuff sacrificed for getting it down to a digestible time, Um, which may be unfortunate. But at the same time, like Carpenter's stance on a director's cut is you don't need a director's cut. Like Mm -hmm. just show the theatrical thing, show what it was. It is what it is and and move on. So It is what it is, but what is it, Chris? It's I'm going to I I'm still going to give it a really deep dive. I wish like we've had a few times on on the show where I've wished we had something between deep dive and just mm-hmm. for Johnny's mommy. Yeah. This would be like the prime candidate for me to go somewhere in between. Um this is like a if you've been through all the other deep dives and you still need something else, go to Vampires. Yeah, I think I gave the deepest deep dive to um, Village of the Damned. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so, I mean, we were, 
we're definitely in the 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 not not the golden era. We're in, we're in some dark times, but we've still got a couple a couple films ahead that have. I mean, Roger Ebert was a huge fan of Ghosts of Mars, and that's coming up next. So we yeah, will well, see. Well, Chris, if you need a hard drink to get you through these these dark times, uh, what would you suggest? So I had a couple ideas coming into this. Uh, for, my first thought was, well, Baldwin's Montoya was drinking the classic premium lager from the 90s, Red Dog, uh, which might actually be a perfect pairing, but I don't know because I've never actually had it, and I'm not sure you can even get it anymore. It was, But it was one of these that was like pitched as a premium lager. It came in a four-pack. That's how good it was. You could only get four for the price of six, but it was still, I think, only like a 4.9 or 5% ABV, uh, you know, made by Miller, but not under the Miller brand. Um, anyway, I, I did a little research into Red Dog, but decided like, because I can't try it and I can't actually, uh, determine, you know, if it fits, I'm not, I'm not going to make that decision. And then I thought, well, actually maybe, maybe I'm, I'm going to treat you to, you know, this is a movie all about vampires ostensibly, uh, maybe treat you to a, to a nice stout, a real dark, thick stout. But I felt like that would be untrue to what the film is as well. So I reached a conclusion that I think I think is actually pretty fitting because this is a beer that, uh, well, first of all, is actually not even really a beer. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but that I sort of have the same relationship with as I do uh, vampires in that there are things that I fondly remember about it, but it's not particularly great. And so that beer that I'm pairing with vampires is Steel Reserve 211 High Gravity Lager, which is actually a malt liquor uh, by Steel Brewing Company, a.k.a. Miller Brewing Company, who, come to think of it, also made Red Dog uh, in Irwindale, California, coming in an ABV of 8.1 and an IBU of question marks because all great beers don't know what their IBU are. Um, So this is a beer that... I had a lot of friends in college who were really into it. And so I, I had it a few times and, uh, you know, it's not the worst thing I've ever had. It's, uh, it's malt liquor though. And so the bar is not terribly high either. Um, it tastes fine. It's, uh, actually one beer that I will say you could mix with something if you wanted to, just to kind of, you know, get the flavor to be a little better. Um, it generally, you can find it in a 16 fluid ounce can, or, uh, if you're feeling fancy, 40 ounce bottles and essentially it's cheap, it's effective and it's probably an acquired taste. So, uh, you know, it gets the job done. You can drink like a King for just peasants pennies. That's steel reserve. Watch it. Buy a 40, and drink it while you are watching vampires. It'll feel so fitting. <laughs> Buy a bad beer. <laughs> it's a, it's not a, like, I would drink, if you brought, Jake, if you brought over a Steel Reserve and were like, we're watching Dangerous Men, I would drink it. Okay. Like, I would absolutely, like, it's not, it's not like I'm going to spit it out. It's just, like, it is by no means <laughs> something that I'm going to crave or pick but it it has its occasions, and its occasions are silly occasions. 
Yeah, and, and some people probably like it. And some people probably like it, John Lesby. Vampires is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures or buried under the remains of your local defunct Hollywood video store. If you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with our really rad recommendations. Jake. Hey, Chris. You still you still with me? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Well, uh, what do you say we brighten up some spirits and uh, get into really rad recommendations? I, yeah, I, I could do that. You want me to go first? I do. I, I want to hear what you have to recommend. I, I wanted a movie that was similar, maybe in theme. Um, also kind of featured some like religious aspects to a horror movie, but one that worked much better and mm-hmm. uh, came from the same director and from 11 years prior, and it's called Prince of Darkness. It's the first uh, film that we reviewed specifically for The Carpenter Shop. Um, And I know all you good Carpenter fans have probably seen it already, but if you haven't and you're listening to this episode, go back and watch Prince of Darkness. I think it shares some similarities here. I think it's much better, uh, or it was executed much better, and I think it shows much more of what John Carpenter is capable of in this realm, in this same kind of similar scenario, but very different, but playing in the same, with, with the same currency or, or working within the same currency. Um, yeah, I, I, I think if you haven't revisited it, it is time to revisit it. I love the fact that, I, I mean, I know you were pretty high on it initially, but I love the fact that it's sustained over sort of your, uh, as, as your appreciation of Carpenter has grown and you've really gotten to know more and more about uh, what he's all about, like it's, it's stayed up there as a, a nice little gym for you. Here's here's what I'll, I'll say about it. Just, you know, the more time I have to think about it. Um, we watched it in a weird place in, in the, you know, bringing it so early yeah. um, in, into, into our reviews. But it's like when you like a really good sitcom, okay, and you get to like the middle of season three, you know, they start doing new, interesting, different things. And then they'll throw an episode in that is just kind of like the regular characters, no new characters, no new locations, 
almost like a ship in a bottle a little bit, but just like this is regular old Kirstie Alley's not there. (laughs) (laughs) This is just a plain episode. There's no craziness. This is just an episode. And I feel like Prince of Darkness is just an episode of a John Carpenter film. It is everything you want. It's nothing special. There's no great actors. There's no terrible actors. There's no great ideas. There's no awful ideas. It is just what you like about John Carpenter movies, just kind of streamlined a little bit. This is exactly what you want. It's a horror. It has the 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 long shots down hallways. It has the right music. It has the right themes. It expo- it plays in the right space. I think it's not a ten, but I think it is just a, a an extremely solid carpenter offering and it is much better than this movie that we watched i'm i'm with you on everything except there are no bad actors because mustache is in that movie (laughs) there are a few bad actors okay okay um so prince of darkness is available to watch uh, wherever you stream movies but the best way to watch it is on a steelbook blu-ray from scream factory that came out recently with some great cover artwork um you find it online buy it watch it there that's that's the best way to see it so so definitely go and watch prince of darkness chris i have an idea of what you're going to recommend but i'm going to let you go ahead do you yeah yeah i I thought it was kind of obvious oh okay i don't think it is but all right we'll see um i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do i haven't been watching a whole lot lately because i've been so busy uh but then I had a thought and I decided I'm just going to I'm just going to recommend the first thing that sort of comes to mind. And so that was a movie. Jake, I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's it's called Blade. I knew it. I knew you were going to recommend Blade. 1998 vampire movie. Same year. I knew it. I knew it. Let me let me, let me finish, Jake. Oh, are, are, is, are you going to recommend the sequel? Dir- directed by Guillermo del Toro, Blade 2. Yes. Is it? I, I knew. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it was gonna be Blade. Blade Two. That's fair. No, no, no. Let me let me finish. Blade Runner, twenty forty nine. I'm recommending Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, you do your thing, Chris. You recommend whatever you want to recommend. I well, here's get... here here's here's my reasoning. Um, this is a film that I feel like almost no one saw last year. Um, box office would say that almost no one saw it last year. Uh, it was absolutely gorgeous. It was very well written, very well directed, very well acted. Um, basically all of the, you know, hyperbole that I can throw on it that I didn't throw on vampires. I can throw at this film. Um, I, I love this movie. It stars Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford, as well as Anna de Armas and Robin Wright. And it's a sequel to Blade Runner, which... I did not think we needed. And um, it's it's more than that, though. It's not just saying, oh, well, let's take a character that we already know and love and see where he would be 30 years down the road. And uh, it's, I mean, the thing that I think is interesting is Blade Runner has always felt a little cold to me, the original. And this takes it and sort of takes the themes that were there, the world building that was there. And really nails it, I think. And I know this is a controversial uh, take for Blade Runner fans. Um, But I I think it really just sort of dives deep into the mythos that is there, but never really really addressed the questions that are never really 
asked and not like, not in a way that's like, oh, I'm going to ask these questions and then answer them. Um, it's just, it's a really, it's one of those movies that I saw it and I was challenged by it and I thought about it for, you know, weeks after. Um, and it's now available on HBO Go. So here's, here's the thing. It's maybe the most beautiful film of last year. So I'm reluctantly recommending that because you haven't seen it yet, I'm sure, and because you're too lazy to rent it or buy it blind, uh, maybe you will watch it on HBO, cropped to 16 by 9, where the beautiful, beautiful Roger Deakins image is totally, totally obliterated. Uh, and then you'll realize <laughs> that this this movie... You should have seen this movie on the big screen with a really in a really loud theater because it's amazing. And then you'll you'll be a little mad at yourself for not seeing it and for drinking more than one steel reserve. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> Blade Runner 2049. Currently on HBO Go, but just go and buy it, please. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I love it. All right. Look, I've been wanting to see it. I still haven't seen it. And you definitely didn't convince me to watch it on HBO Go, but you may have convinced me to buy it. Jake, you can watch it in 4K right now on the library that we share. Mm, on my 4K TV too. On your 4K TV, do you do you have a do you have a surround sound setup? I don't. Okay, just crank that stereo as loud as it can possibly go. All right. I I I do owe a rewatch to one of the many versions of the original Blade Runner first. Or maybe I don't need that. Um I don't think you need it. It's so inconsequential as long as you remember the basic uh sort of beats as far as like how characters related to other characters and who characters were. I think you'll be fine. Right. Uh the only thing I remember from it is when I was a child I remember making a unicorn out of origami paper. Perfect. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's Space Western starring Ice Cube, Pam Greer, and Jason Statham. Ghost of Mars. Is that accurate? Are those people all in one movie? Those people are all in this movie. That's correct. That sounds like you drew three cards from a, like, invent a film game (laughs) that doesn't exist. Oh, Lord. You can you can catch Ghost of Mars streaming right now on Stars. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And check out our mothership podcast at warstartmidnight.com. You can also say howdy on Twitter at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, and tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts. Or... Rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find them at dragonin3.com. And shout out to Generationals for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at generationals.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Enjoy the barbecue, baby. Barbecue.